look at the last verse of, of Mark chapter 8 and uh, all the way through chapter 9, verse 13. And uh, this is uh, Jesus' words that we're reading here in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and, my, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus uh, took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a, a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that the same spirit who uh, authored these words, has preserved these words all these years, and is now the same spirit you promise will, will teach us and enlighten our minds to understand these words. So we pray that you would be our teacher and, and as we study these words, you would lead us to worship Jesus, who is our Savior and our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this morning... Um, Sermon is a little different. Uh, if, you, if you come to Christ Church uh, regularly, you know that uh, I have a certain philosophy around uh, preaching where uh, each week uh, we take a passage and I choose a topic. Usually it's one word that is, becomes the topic for the sermon. And then everything that we say about the passage that we're studying is tied together into that one topic. Well, this week I could not figure out a topic. <laughs> from this passage. So we're going to try something a little different. I'm just going to go through the passage and I'm going to explain it. And, uh, and this is the story of the transfiguration uh, where Jesus takes uh, three of his closest disciples on the mountain to reveal to them his glory. And when they're up on the mountain, uh, Moses and Elijah are there too. And Jesus talks with Moses and Elijah. And uh, Peter, who was up on the mountain with Jesus, later wrote about this experience. If you read the book of 2 Peter, is a letter that Peter wrote. And this is what he said about it. He said, For when Jesus received honor and glory 
from, the, from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this vo- very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This experience that Peter had of the transfiguration made a deep and permanent impression on him. And he became the great leader of the, of the early church. And this was, this was a central moment in his life. And, uh, and so today, uh, we're just going to study through this passage together. And there's, there's so much in, in these words. And so I still have three points to guide us, though, as we go along. And this is what they are, is that the kingdom comes in power, the kingdom comes in glory, and the kingdom comes in suffering. Three truths we see here is that the kingdom comes in power, the kingdom comes in glory, and the kingdom comes in suffering. And my hope is that as we read this passage, we will all see the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Why no one who has ever lived has been like him. And so uh, three points today as we uh, learn about our Lord and Savior. So the first is this. The kingdom comes in power. Kingdom comes in power. Now, chapter 9 begins with a saying from Jesus that's had a a variety of interpretations from different commentators. And it's that verse 1 there. You see what it's, and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus is saying, in this verse, that the kingdom of God will come with power during the lifetime of some of his disciples. What's he talking about? Well, uh, Albert Schweitzer was a a Lutheran theologian in the early 20th century who was kind of a leader in what was called uh, the quest for the historical Jesus. And maybe some of you have read books about the historical Jesus, but there's this whole movement in modern times where he said, well, you know, what you get in the Bible is not really the Jesus. That's basically propaganda. And so we're going to try to discern what Jesus really was like. Who was the real historical man? Jesus, maybe you've seen the Da Vinci Code where they talk about, well, Jesus had a wife and he had children. And there's absolutely no evidence anywhere for that. But it's just people getting behind the Gospels to the real Jesus. Well, Schweitzer was a a very uh, bright uh, historian, theologian. and, And Schweitzer's version of Jesus says that Jesus was a first century apocalyptic prophet who was preaching that Jesus' main message was that the end of the world is coming soon. And so tragically, Jesus went to the cross, you know, preaching this message. And you might say, well, where, do you, where did Schweitzer get that, that Jesus thought that the end of the world was coming soon? Well, it was from verses like this one in verse 1. And he assumed that when Jesus says the kingdom is coming with power meant the end of the world. And so when Jesus said that the kingdom was going to come with power in the lifetime of his disciples, he was tragically wrong. It never came. The world didn't end in Jesus' lifetime, and he was wrong. That's what Schweitzer said. So the question is, is that really what Jesus was saying? Well, let me give two reasons why the answer is clearly no. That is not what Jesus meant. Okay? And the first reason is this saying is carefully placed in the Gospel of Mark right next to the story of the transfiguration. 
These two episodes are put next to each other because you see immediately after Jesus says, some of you standing here are going to see the kingdom coming in power. What happens next in verse 2? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Mark clearly sees a link between these two episodes. Immediately after Jesus says, some standing here are going to see the kingdom, some of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, go up on the mountain with him. And so the transfiguration is a partial fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about. Now, the only problem with this is that in the transfiguration, it doesn't mention anything about the kingdom or about power. And so I think a second question we have to ask is, does the kingdom come with power in any way during the lifetime of the disciples? Does God's kingdom come with power during the lifetime of the disciples? And the answer is yes. That's basically what the New Testament is about, is about the kingdom coming with power during their lifetimes. And the phrase power is used by Jesus. He tells his disciples, power is going to come upon you when you receive the Holy Spirit. And it was the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead after he was crucified. And then in the early church, after Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit with power on the early disciples at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the book of Acts is all about how despite all this hostility, the early disciples were facing, they were planting churches and people were coming to faith and they were being saved and accepting Christ. And there was a tremendous movement of the kingdom by God's power. The kingdom definitely came with power within the lifetime of the disciples, and Jesus was not talking about the end of the world. But in fact, those aren't the only ways that the kingdom came with power. Because you'll notice there, uh, I've included the final verse from chapter 8. You see what it says there in verse 38? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now again, you might read that. When Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come in glory with his Father and the holy angels, you might think that's talking about the end of the world. That's talking about the second coming. And it might have some connection to Jesus' second coming, but primarily it had an immediate fulfillment for that generation. He's talking about this sinful generation is what he says in that verse. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You'll notice that in verse 38, it uses this language, the Son of Man coming and glory. And then in verse 1, it uses these words, the disciples will see the kingdom with power. So these same phrases appear together in two other verses in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, One is chapter 13, verse 26, where Jesus says these words, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. All those same words appear in that verse. And yet, just four verses later, Jesus says about that verse, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He's saying the exact same thing he's saying back in verse 9. But in, verse, in Mark chapter 13, it becomes very clear that Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, when the, kind of the old world of the, the temple and the priesthood would be judged by, by him and it would be destroyed by the Romans. And this would happen in the lifetime of the disciples. And uh, one other place these words appear is, is in chapter 14, verse 62, 
It's during Jesus' trial where he's before the, uh, the Jewish council and the elders and the priests, and he's get, they're putting him on trial to have him crucified. And Jesus says, you, speaking to the elders and the priests, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, the exact same language is being used. And so he's saying these elders and these priests in their lifetime are going to see the power of the kingdom. And he's warning them of the judgment that's about to come on Jerusalem and and the, the elders and the priests that are in Jerusalem. And that is exactly what happened. He was right. In 70 AD, the Romans laid siege to, to Jerusalem at the kind of at the end of the Jewish wars. The Jews had, had revolted against the Romans, and Titus, who later became the emperor, was had had laid siege to Jerusalem, it was just an absolutely brutal experience for God's people. And so you might think that the mention of the Son of Man coming is a reference to the second coming. But in Greek, actually, there are two different words that the New Testament translates the coming. Erechimai and parousia. And parousia is the one that's really used as like a technical term that's talking about the second coming when Jesus will come again on the last day to to judge all the nations. And in these passages that I all read to you, it's all Erechimai. It's a different word. And so the, the point is that the kingdom came in power. Not the way anyone expected. Jesus would be crucified and raised from the dead by God's power. He would ascend to the throne at the right hand of God in heaven. And he would send the power of the Holy Spirit on the church. And he would at the end of that generation come in power to judge Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And by the way, that judgment on Jerusalem is not something you read about in the Bible. It's something we read about it in Roman and Jewish historians who teach us about that. This happened in history. So, uh, so the first thing is that the kingdom comes in power. Second thing we learn from this passage is that also the kingdom comes in glory. The kingdom comes in glory. And in the next section of this passage, Jesus takes his three closest disciples up on a mountain with him. And during that time, he gives them a glimpse of his glory, who he really is. And during that glimpse, we learn three things about Jesus' glory, okay? The first thing is this, is that Jesus is more than a mere man. First, Jesus is more than a mere man. And you see at the end of verse 2 how it says, And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. So there's some kind of unveiling happening here where Jesus is showing who he really, you know, his true nature to these disciples. You know, and in Mark's version, it appears that it was mainly Jesus' clothes that were shining. Um, It wasn't him. And this kind of, you know, radiant clothing was a feature of heavenly beings in the Old Testament. And that's why it says in the end of verse 3, as no one on earth could bleach them. So he's not looking like an earthly being. Jesus is not of earth. He is of Heaven, and so when you think in heaven, who is clothed with light in heaven? Well, Psalm 104 tells us, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. What this is saying is that Jesus, in this passage, he is Yahweh. He is the God of Israel, the the Lord of the Old Covenant. 
And he is the God of Psalm 104. He's the one who made the moon to mark the seasons. And he's the one who gives all the creatures their food in due season. And so that Yahweh, the Lord of nature, the Lord of Israel, has come and is now walking around among his disciples. And they are just getting a glimpse here of who he really is. It's like his true nature has been, has been veiled to them. But um, it actually doesn't just say that Jesus' clothes were transfigured because it was him. If you read Matthew's account of this, it says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And so the shining of Jesus' faith is related to, uh, face is related to a, a second truth about Jesus' glory. So Jesus is first. He's more than a mere man. He actually, he's God himself become a man. The second is that Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Jesus is greater than all the prophets. And so Jesus' face is shining with glory. And then it says there in verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, amazingly, these two uh, prophets from the Old Testament appear on the mountain with Jesus. And you think, what an amazing conversation. What are they talking about? They come and, and meet with the Lord to talk with him. And actually, this scene evokes all kinds of things from the Exodus story in the Old Testament. You know, Moses is there. Moses is the main character from the Exodus. And, uh, and, this, uh, and so, for example, they go up on this mountain, and it's covered with a cloud. And if you go into the story of Moses, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and it was covered with a cloud and it, the cloud covered it for six days. And then in this story, it was six days when the, the disciples went to this mountain. And in the Gospel of Luke, actually, if you go read the Gospel of Luke, it tells you a little bit about what uh, Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about. It says that they spoke of Jesus' departure. And the Greek word for departure there is exodus. They were speaking about Jesus' exodus. They were telling this, you know, Moses led Israel through the exodus in the Old Testament, and Jesus is now going to lead his people through a greater exodus. And so Jesus is, is talking with Moses about the greater exodus that he's about to lead his people through. And in fact, in the next verse, it says in verse 5, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And so the mention of the tents means that Peter's also thinking about the Exodus. Because if you go back in the Exodus, why was there a tent? Moses would go into a tent to meet with the Lord. And so now Peter's like, well, we'll get Moses a tent, Jesus will have a tent, Elijah, everyone will have a tent to go meet with the Lord. And so Peter thinks he's honoring Jesus by saying, you're one of the prophets. You're one of the ones who goes and meets with God and talks with God intimately. And so how do we know from this passage that actually Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Well, it'll become clear in a moment when God's voice speaks. But first, you know, in the, if you go back to the Exodus story and you read about when Moses would go into the tent, it said that he would come out and he would, his face would be shining with glory. And he'd have to wear a veil. It was like his face was reflecting the glory that he had experienced within the tent. And, uh, and yet... In this narrative from Mark, there's all these connections with the Exodus. And commentators say, it's like Mark has the opportunity to just put the pieces together and say there was Moses was like this, and Jesus is just like him. And yet, there's no verbal allusions that really bring the two stories together. Why is that? Why doesn't Mark make that connection? It's because Jesus is not reflecting the Lord's glory. Jesus is not like Moses 
who goes and meets with God and his face starts shining. Jesus is the Lord that Moses was meeting with when he went into the tent. Jesus is not reflecting God's glory. Jesus has an original glory. He is the very glory of God. And so they are totally different. And you might wonder, you know, the Bible talks about the glory of God. Well, like, what is that? And, you know, glory talks about the, is like the light of God shining. This shows God's character, what he is really like, his, his beauty and truth and power and wisdom and majesty. And all those things are most perfectly displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. And how do ex- humans experience God's glory when they encounter it? When you encounter God's glory, what's it like? Well, this passage tells us in verse 6. For Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. In the presence of the glory, the only response is fear. So we see that the kingdom comes in glory. And the glory of Jesus is first that he's far more than a mere man, and that he is far greater than all the prophets. He doesn't reflect God's glory. He has the original glory within himself. But here, uh, here's what's interesting about this passage. You know, you imagine, okay, if you got to look into the inner nature of God and find out at his core, what is God like? What would you behold there? What would the glory be singing about? And, well, that's what we learn a third quality of Jesus' glory So Jesus is not just a mere man. Jesus is greater than all the prophets. But third, Jesus is loved as a son. Jesus is a loved one. And when you get into the inner heart of God, this is what you find in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's a father who loves his son. At the center of God's being, at the center of existence itself, is a loving relationship between a father and a son. And this is the deep reality behind all that exists. And, you know, there are these scientists talk about, you know, hopefully they, one day they will find a, a kind of like a total theory that will be a framework that will tie together all the different theories about physics that will explain the universe. And Christianity alone can say that the deep truth that holds all the other truths together is that there is a God of love. Jesus says in in John 17, he prayed this, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. He's saying before there were stars or there were mountains or there were oceans or trees or mammals or rainbows or any of people like us, what was there? There was love. There was love between two persons. There was relationship. That is the deep reality. And you think about that. What that means is that God did not need to create a world to have love. You know, you imagine if God was just one person. He wasn't Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he was just one person. And you think before there was a universe, what was he doing? It's frightening, this monad all alone in the darkness with his own thoughts. And then he needed, he was so needy, he needed to create a world in order to have a relationship and to love someone. And what was happening in eternity before the creation? It sounds like hell, alone, in the darkness, by yourself. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says that 
in all eternity, there was a father and son who loved one another in the spirit. And they had such joy and such authenticity and openness and glorying and rejoicing in one another. And it was out of the overflow of their love, they said, let's make a world and invite them into our love and share our love with them. It was out of their abundance, not out of their neediness, that they created us. And so Jesus is not merely a man. He is the God of Psalm 104. And Jesus is not merely among the prophets. He is the glory that Moses encountered when he went into the tent. And Jesus is not just a son of God. He is God's only begotten beloved son who, he, who the Father has loved from before all creation and in eternity. And so this is the glory that Peter, James, and John beheld on the mountain. And so the kingdom comes in power. It came in power in the first generation with the raising of Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit descending on the church, and the judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the kingdom comes with glory that God's beloved son became a human and walked among us, and he is greater than all the prophets. But the last thing that we see in this passage is also that the kingdom comes in suffering. The kingdom comes in suffering. After saying that the kingdom comes with power and glory, the final point is surprising, but Jesus insists upon it over and over again that the kingdom comes in suffering. And you see that there in verse 9, how it says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of God had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So interestingly, in just the, the chapter right before this, Jesus had told his disciples, hey, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. The chief priests and the elders are going to kill me. And then on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And they're like, they're still, he's still telling them about it. And they're like, what? We're not tracking. What are you talking about? And so they're still asking all these questions about what's all that about? But then it goes on in verse 11. And it says, and they asked him, why does this, why does the scribe say that first Elijah must come. Now, this question uh, comes from the fact that they just saw Elijah on the mountain, and they, and they, they know that the appearing of uh, Elijah was of eschatological significance. And eschatological, it comes from the Greek word for eschatos, which means last, the last things. That in the Old Testament, it says, in the last days, Elijah is going to come. And actually, in Malachi chapter 4, it's the final chapter of the Old Testament. It says that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And in Jesus' day, there had been a scribal tradition that said, Elijah is going to come when the Messiah comes. Those two things are tied together. And you'll notice that Jesus does not disagree with that interpretation. In verse 12, it says, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But in case the disciples have some picture in their minds of what the Messiah is going to do, he makes it very clear in the end of verse 12. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And so Jesus is making very clear again, yes, the kingdom comes with power. Yes, the kingdom comes with glory, but also... That does not negate that the kingdom comes with suffering and that the only pathway to power and glory is through the cross. And that's not just true of Jesus the Messiah, but also of Elijah who's to come. You see at verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come 
And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, you know in Matthew, Jesus makes very clear that Elijah coming again was John the Baptist, who had come right before Jesus. And they wore similar, similar clothing, you know, camel, camel's hair and a leather belt. And, uh, and John the Baptist ate locusts and honey. He's just like Elijah from the Old Testament. And so, uh, and... Um, John the Baptist was imprisoned, and then he was beheaded by Herod. And so it was true of John the Baptist. It was true of Jesus. It was true of his disciples. And it is true for us. The kingdom only comes through suffering. What all this tells us is the incredible uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Of all the figures who have walked this planet throughout history, there is none like him, and there is no kingdom like his. And so how the scene on the mountain ends is how it is still for us today. Look at verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. That's the vision that the scripture leads us to. Who should we trust in? Who can save us? Who's worthy to be king? Everyone disappears. It is Jesus alone. He is unique and there is none like him. And so he alone deserves our trust, our praise, and our adoration. Let's pray together.